Welcome to Pick Me Up, I'm Scared, the podcast. I'm your host, Madeline. Uh, And I'm your co-host, Kenna. And today we're going to be talking about what a front yard would look like in Utopia. Ooh, I like this one. Very on brand for me. Yes, Kenna loves the idea of Utopia. So I wanted to start by asking, Kenna, imagine your Utopia. What does a front yard look like there? Oh my gosh. I think in Utopia, there probably is no front yard. It's just like an opening onto a greater square where all your friends, family, chosen family like exists and it's pretty to each one's own particular taste. I don't know. It'd probably be to my own taste. I mean, in my life, I would prefer just to walk out into the world and it be beautiful and see people and be inviting to other people. But yeah, it's it's hard to imagine a front lawn for me. (laughs) Okay. So this is apparently right on track with the general growing consensus about how uh, front lawns are an evil thing that needs to be obliterated and destroyed at all costs. Um, I think uh, I have watched uh, possibly a YouTube documentary about um, front lawns or it had the opening of front lawns and how it um, um, is is somewhat bad. Yes. So, okay, I fell into this rabbit hole on TikTok maybe a year ago of teenagers um, absolutely dissing front lawns in the most hilarious way possible. It would be like a trend where you'd see like a photo of an American like green landscape front lawn and then some like hip teen with good eyeliner would be like, not in my future house, uh-uh. <laughs> like I'm instead gonna have this like beautiful mossy fairyland garden. And um, then the video would just like show these natural landscapes with people being like, oh yes, beautiful, gorgeous, love it. And this sent me down this rabbit hole because I wanted to learn more about why people hate front lawns so much. Um, So I was started thinking about like my own experience with the American front lawn. And I knew um, growing up, like instinctively that people with outdoor space had more money than me, but I didn't really think too much about it. So I grew up in apartments a lot of the time, obviously no front lawn. Um, When we did rent like a house, oftentimes the front lawn would be too expensive to care for. So we would not have grass in our front lawn or we'd be like the sketchy neighbor with like the burnt out bad front lawn that everyone else on the street was like embarrassed of us. And at one house I lived in, my stepmother even ripped up the grass and replaced it with this hideous like dirt and sandstone thing because she didn't want to deal with the lawn anymore. And I remember being so embarrassed of our front yard anytime any of my friends would come over. Um, And now I'm understanding that this was definitely tied, yes, to like socioeconomic status. And by high school, my mother had married a man with a good job. This was the front first time we had a nice front lawn in front of our house. But we never used it. It's not like we sat in it. It's not like we enjoyed it. It was just wasted, beautiful greenery. So I'm wondering what your personal experience is with the front yard. Like, did you guys have one growing up? Did you use it? If you did, what did it look like? Um, I come from a very, um, rural town, I guess, um, you know, like under 20,000 people in Colorado. So in my experience, um, living in a rural place in Colorado, most people did not have like the, the, you know, the, the 1950s front yard, unless you were rich. Um, and maybe it's just the landscape of Colorado. We technically had a front yard, but my dad, um, just drove his pickup truck on it. So they made it basically into an extra driveway. But I grew up in like, my dad was a former uh, semi-professional rodeo person. So in the back of our house, there was like an acre um, where we had horses. And well, we used to have horses and then my dad had an accident. Long story, didn't have horses anymore. But we had this extra acre in the back And it mostly was just overgrown. Like I, okay, I actually am thinking about this now. I used to have to, from the age of 10, take the riding lawnmower and mow the back acre. And there is a (laughs) ditch that's about a foot deep in the back acre that I would always run into. And I would get in trouble every single time 
because I would get into the ditch. And then I realized if I just kept getting into the ditch, I wouldn't have to mow the back acre anymore on this yard. But it wasn't like a nice yard. It was just like overgrown weeds. And, you know, my dad did, and my mom did a lot of like backyard, like, you know, there were some trees, there were flowers. My dad um, has a green thumb. So he had like peonies and like yellow roses and stuff like that but it wasn't really like a yard yard it was more naturey more naturey like people who lived um in like the nicer area of the town like had yards like that with like sprinkler systems and stuff but my um I think just growing up in Colorado it's very like uh, like don't use too much water. Like, so it seemed really wasteful, but I definitely like remember thinking that yards were something that you really only saw on TV or for rich people. That was like the traditional yard, you know, where I grew up, sometimes people would have like, um, animals in their front yard. Like when I'd walk up the street, there was like, people would sometimes have like cows or goats or emus, whatever those are. So it sounds like your experience was like a more progressive experience than the majority of Americans had revolving like personal outdoor space, because that all sounds like relatively well utilized space to me, which is like not something that we really encountered growing up, but I did grow up in a city of over half a million people. Yes. So a very different experience. And it sounds like what you're accustomed to is definitely more um, in line with what the kind of growing revolution in front lawn space is. I do also love that as a kid, you realized, like, if I just keep doing this task wrong, nobody will ask me to do it again. That is very smart because, like, side note, one time um, when I lived in Santa Cruz, I worked at a photo lab, and they, like, gave this guy, gave me to this guy to be trained, basically, and he was this surly dude who looked straight out of a Kevin Smith movie, and the only thing he told me is try not to learn stuff because the more stuff you learn, the more they will make you do it, and we do not make enough money for that. That is true. And I, I wish someone that. would have told me that at 14 when I was too good for my job. Yes. <laughs> okay. So... All of this makes sense because um, the American front lawn is very unnatural, right? The lawn that we think of today is made up of grasses that came from Europe. And originally, they were planted with the intention of feeding livestock that Europeans brought to North America when they started colonizing. And it took a ton of work to grow it, like even back during heyday of colonization, and even now still does. Lawns require 3 trillion gallons of water per year, 200 million gallons of gas for mowing, like the lawn mower you were on, and 70 million pounds of pesticides to keep them alive, Uh, which is why only people with disposable income can usually afford to properly care for and maintain a front lawn. So we have these lawns that cost a lot of money and take a lot of work to maintain, and very few of us actually utilize them as outdoor space, especially in the front of our homes. American front lawns take up 2% of all total land available in the United States, and it's a $30 billion a year industry trying to keep them alive. So by contrast, because I'm pretty bad at conceptualizing what 2% of all land in the U.S. looks like, um, U.S. national parks make up 3.4% of all land. So our front lawns are two-thirds the size of all of the national park system. That's a huge amount of space. It's 63,000 square miles of space, which is about the size of Texas. And it's the most grown crop in the United States, but nobody can eat it, and it doesn't help anything ecologically, and it actually is kind of bad for the environment. So, you know, how did we get here? Like most things, it's colonialism and capitalism. It's always capitalism, right? So I'm going to tell you now a little history of how we got to the American front lawn we have today. So when white people first started colonizing North America, they brought cattle, sheep, and goats with them. However, all of the native grasses found here were like broom straw, wild rye, marsh grass, all things I've never heard of, which is probably telling. They had lower nutritional value for these livestock because these animals were not adapted to survive in North America, right? They were better suited to live in Europe where they came from. So we brought all these like white people animals here and these animals like ate all of the grass available because they weren't picky but it didn't give them very good like nutritional content it totally decimated the natural landscape which was not like accustomed to this quantity of livestock grazing on it and then all of the naturally 
unnutritious grasses disappeared and then the animals started dying from starvation or they just started eating poisonous plants because they had no other options, which is like, wow, out of all of the horrible things that colonization did, it also killed a bunch of animals, which I didn't think about, but which obviously is not the most important horrifying thing about colonization. Just an interesting thing that I had never considered. So... By 17th century, the colonizers started importing European grasses to feed their European livestock, um, which also came along with European weeds, which started to root along port sides. So according to Scientific American, by 1672, 22 species of European weeds could already be found in Massachusetts Bay. And all of these imported grasses spread across North America, but they were still largely only being used by farmers to feed their livestock. After the American Revolution, even though Americans weren't traveling back and forth to Europe so much anymore because apparently we were, like, mad at our dad in Europe or whatever, um, European style was still upheld as the ideal in the U.S., which makes sense, right? Because, like, Eurocentric beauty standards, like, are so pervasive here in so many different ways, and it includes, like, architecturally. So most people started modeling their residential homes after European homes, which had a small, like, flower garden in the front and then an enclosed private yard in the back because a big thing about, like, European lifestyle ideals was this idea of privacy. However, in France and England, a new style of landscaping landscaping had just started to emerge, which used expansive, highly manicured green space, which we now would think of as a front lawn. At Versailles in France, a, quote, green carpet was installed but in French, but I don't know how to speak French, so green carpet. And it was literally just a blanket of grass. And it took a ton of work to uphold and maintain this, which is why it was at Versailles, right? Because Versailles was the palace that was like the epitome of luxury and excess in France. Um, so Thomas Jefferson apparently, like, did go to Europe. And, you know, he's, like, a douchebag racist who owned, like, over 600 slaves in his life. And he saw this in Europe, and he was like, wow, this is great. I love that. And he took it back to his primary plantation is a term I learned when looking this up, which means apparently he had a lot of plantations, which was called Monticello. And Monticello was in Virginia. And for reference, over 400 people were enslaved um, at Monticello during his lifetime. And there was usually 130 slaves there being held at any one time or enslaved people, which I believe is the better terminology to use. Uh, So this part is especially creepy to me because since we know that those unnatural European grasses were so hard to maintain in the United States and took so much work, I mean, you pretty much know that he's using enslaved people to maintain these lawns um, where this grass is not supposed to thrive. And it's just extra creepy to me um, that this lawn that was like a status symbol of luxury, obviously here in the United States, um, enslaved people have to maintain it for this rich white asshole to look extra fancy and extra European. So this caught on, and then George Washington apparently was like, wow, love that. So he hired an English landscaper to create a green lawn for him as well at his home, uh, Mount Vernon, which all these rich white people, their houses had names, which is very weird and extra creepy as well. Uh, When did we stop naming our houses is my question, but whatever. So, of course, George Washington also had hundreds of people enslaved in Mount Vernon who were probably also tasked with maintaining this yard since they built the plantations and all the houses that he lived in and all the structures. So then after this, all these rich people started wanting lawns that looked just like this because Thomas Jefferson and George Washington Ooh, um, but for the most part, average houses in the U.S. still had just that like small flower thing in the front, little enclosed space in the back because they were so expensive and difficult to maintain anything else like the lawns until the 1920s. So what do you think may have happened in the 1920s that changed this? Um, ooh, I mean, when I think of the 1920s, I just think of, you know, the roaring 20s with like the robber barons and like, you know, Uh, A lot of, like, super rich, you know, people. And then, like, you know, isn't the 1920s, like, the most stratified economically it's been since now? Yeah. So a lot was happening in the 1920s. um, And one of the big things was cars. Oh, yes. Cars started to get super popular, which is why, for the first time, the U.S. suburbs started growing more than the cities. Mm -hmm. And it did also come with a lot of segregation, a lot of social stratification, economic stratification, for sure. 
But as these cars became commonplace, um, you know, upper middle class white American homeowners started wanting to beautify their front yards because people were driving by and looking at them. Oh, interesting. So they had an audience for the first time, basically, and they had disposable income and they were like, I'm going to make this like look really impressive. Hmm. So everybody driving by knows how rich and fancy and special I am. And uh, houses even started to be built facing rail lines so that the commuters had something pretty to look at, which meant even more the front yard was on display. Whoa. Pretty interesting. So then after World War II, a lot of stuff was happening economically in the United States. So the U.S. government started financing cheaper mortgages. So when this happened, there was like a development boom. And developers started to build these cheap, fast tract homes, which did you guys have tract homes where you lived growing up? Probably. I mean, I feel like there's a lot of, um, what are the home, pre, pre-made homes? Oh, like prefab. Prefab. There's definitely a lot of prefab homes um, and trailers and modular homes and things like that. Okay. So we had tracked homes galore in the Central Valley of California where I grew up. So basically in our city, there was the city center, which had was historic, had been there for a long time, but people just kept wanting to expand further out, 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 which is like also probably just a creepy um, white American like manifest destiny thing or something. I don't know. But these new tract home developments would get built all the time. They were always really affordable and the houses were like cookie cutter, kind of like the opening sequence of um, Edward Scissorhands. I was just thinking Edward Scissorhands. Like that's what I think of when I think of lawns, suburbs, like people with their, I mean, pastel cars. Not that that happens now, but you know. I wish. The um, almost like John Waters-esque, like my lovely lawn and my lawn ornaments and my car. And, you know, it seems like a very weird mid-century American thing. Yes. So exactly. So we had this. And in fact, the house where my stepmom like took out the front lawn to replace it with the ugly sandstone and dirt so it didn't have to be maintained, that was a tract home that I lived in. Oh, gotcha. So very cheap, built very fast and designed to give maybe lower middle class people or even upper lower class people the illusion that they had reached this like upper middle class American dream of mobility. And it was very much, I remember growing up there, this idea of faking it till you make it. Like, we didn't have a lot of money, but this seemed nicer than the apartments we had been living in. And the ability to buy a home, which, you know, was $180,000, I think, was in California, right? Very affordable, relatively speaking. It gave us the illusion that there was some sort of success or some status had had been obtained. And this is how it was after World War II, apparently also, when these developers started making these cheap, fast tract homes um, because the government was financing these lower-priced mortgages. So they built all these really kind of crummy, fast houses, but to make them feel kind of aspirational, like like you've made it, they gave them all well-manicured front lawns. So now all of these blue-collar working-class people could afford to purchase these homes that had these lawns that had previously been a status symbol for the upper middle class. And it just kind of stuck. Um, So now it's the norm here years later. And even when Americans travel abroad and, like, live somewhere else, they tend to also bring with them the American front lawn. Like, there are, I guess, expat communities all over the world, like, even in deserts and other countries where nobody else has a front lawn, but the Americans are like, we must put in the front lawn. That is so weird to me. I mean, I guess I didn't grow up, uh, you know, being close to tract homes or suburbs, but... Um, I think my my cousins who lived in like Colorado Springs, I'd be like, ah, yes. But I'm like, I don't know why people like that's such a weird thing to think of bringing with you elsewhere. Yes. Well, I mean, that's kind of what we do as as Americans, though, or as like white people of European descent, which you and I both are. It's like when we go somewhere, we seldom respect the culture that is there, unfortunately. And we instead decide to bring our shit with us because for some reason we think it's better. Yeah, I don't get that. I don't get that either. It's really gross. It's not one of our finer traits. Um, (laughs) So, but yeah, we do this with the lawn as well. And now we have all these useless outdoor spaces of unnatural grasses that don't belong where they are. They waste water. They use up fossil fuels for the 
mowing and maintaining. They have rainwater runoff that carries pesticides and fertilizers into rivers, lakes, streams, and oceans via the sewer system where they poison natural habitats, pollute our oceans, right? Because it takes all these pesticides and fertilizers to even make them grow. They're not even supposed to be growing here. The lawnmowers contribute to air pollution, and there's this unnatural disruption of local ecosystems, which I didn't really stop to think about. But the lawn is there in place of natural wildlife, um, and these birds and insects are losing their food sources, right, when we take out naturally occurring landscapes and put in these artificial front lawns. They also are more likely to ingest poisonous pesticides. It's just this huge kind of ecological crisis. And this is where all of the TikToks with the hip teenagers come in, right? Ooh, so I was right to um, put the riding lawnmower in the ditch. You were correct. That is where it belongs, yes. Um, so yeah, so now there's this movement of these like young hip people who want to replace the American front lawn with something called native planting, which is just what it sounds like. You only plant um, plants in your outdoor space that are naturally occurring to that region. So they're natural to the environment, and they're the ecological basis for all the wildlife in that location. They provide nectar for pollinating birds and insects. They provide sometimes even nuts, seeds, and fruit for wildlife, and often even shelter for small local mammals, depending on where you live. They're also naturally developed for that region, meaning they usually require no mowing, low maintenance, little to no artificial watering, and that could potentially save, you know, that three trillion gallons of water per year we spend just watering our front lawns. Uh, also, the suburban lawn uses 10 times as many pesticides as an average farmland. Whoa. I know, and it's not even growing food, which is so wild to me. Oh, my gosh. Um, so native plants require none of that because they're naturally developed through adaptation, right, to grow in these climates. So this is where they want to be. They don't need extra help being here. This is, like, where they want to live. And they also can help um, combat climate change since many native long-living trees store greenhouse gas carbon dioxide. Um, so, yeah, basically there's this new community growing of people who are, like, gardeners who only use native plants. Um, I don't know what YouTube video you watched, but I got into, like, this rabbit hole of YouTube videos of people who had been doing native plant gardening in Southern California for, like, decades so they were all of these grandmas, and the format of the show is very, like, public access, and it was so funny. It's these people using, like, um, the green screen feature on, like, their, their MacBook, like, photo booth, you know? So they're, like, poorly superimposed on just, like, a picture of their own front lawn, and there's multiple people, and they're all grandparent age chatting with each other then they'll do these interviews at people's homes where it's just somebody like recording themselves on their iphone showing off their garden but everybody is pretty bad at technology so there's all these technological like mishaps that happen and like people's fingers are partially covering Aww, the camera so lovely it's so sweet and then they'll like show you all around their garden and they'll be like my garden is 98% native or 99% native you know everyone's trying to get as close to that 100% native as possible and it's really beautiful and amazing um and then on the flip side of that, there's all of these young people who are super into it. So when I started learning all of this, I told my boyfriend, like, oh, I want to I wanna do this with our outdoor space. And, of course, it's L.A. So he's like, oh, yeah, I know of a native gardening plant store. Um, my friend's band played there. Whoa. And I was like, what? Like, your friend's band played at a plant store? Welcome to L.A., where even the plants rock. Yes, exactly. So this is apparently, like, a hip trend um, that I was not aware of. So we went to this plant store, and it was, it was like, too cool, you know? It was, like, playing, um, like, psychic TV when we get there. Why? I don't, because it's the cool plant store. All of the, like, tools they sell are all, like, this is this, like, Japanese-made, like, beautiful wood handcrafted, like, spade. I don't, it was just wild. Um, and there's these two, like, hip, long-haired dudes working that are like, let me show you around, like, the, the naturally occurring low-laying ground covers, man. Um, and it's apparently, like, this whole scene, but it didn't, it didn't sway me away. I mean, I think like if there's something that like the LA hipsters and the grandparents on YouTube can come together on, maybe it's the future. Um, 
And also, a thing I think about a lot, too, is that you can look up the food-producing native plants for your region, right? So if you, I mean, in Southern California, we don't have a lot of food producing naturally occurring plants, but we do have things like sage um, or even like some berries and things like that. And I love the idea that if you replace your lawns with these naturally occurring food producing plants, you could potentially feed your community. Not all of it. Obviously, we need probably agriculture, I would guess. I'm not smart enough to know. But, like, how cool would it be to walk down your street and you can just, like, pull up some sage from someone's front yard or grab some berries? And you could reintroduce this idea of suburban and even urban foraging to help feed communities in need when hunger is such, like, a widespread, pervasive issue. I feel like maybe that is, like, what a front yard looks like in a utopia, one that can like feed your community and is naturally occurring and requires minimal effort. But I don't know. What do you think? I love that. I love when people are like, please take the lemons. Like, please take a little book from the book nook. Like, take a book, leave a book. Or like, you know, when I lived in Portland for many years, sometimes you'd see that in people's yards. Like, you know, take some zucchini, leave some zucchini. (laughs) (laughs) It's a very Portland thing, I think. Yeah, Yeah, but... I'm so down. I feel like, you know, we are so obsessed with privacy right now. And to some extent, we do all need our privacy. But sometimes we think we need privacy where we don't, where it's like, I feel like our front lawns can be a place where it's like, yeah, come in, like, come into my world or we're connected. Not necessarily that you have to like, you know, invite everybody into your house or your private space. But I think that we get a lot more joy out of it than we think. Like um, I was listening to some other podcast where they were talking about how um, it seems like people really don't want to talk to strangers. They're like, no, like do not bother me, you know, while we're walking down the museum. But, you know, to a certain extent, if someone says, you know, hi to you, you and you're not looking at your phone or not trying to be, a, you know, stay away and you're just like, hey, what's up? You can most people report having a more pleasurable experience. And I don't know. I don't know if that's smart or not. Like I said, I am not, I am not very smart, but you know, it does seem like a way to invite something new and special into your life. You know, if you had like a front yard like that. I think I agree with that because um, I think about this a lot, how a lot of capitalism thrives on isolating us from the idea of our neighbors by making us think of our neighbors as they and we are we, right? That we, they mentality where we must protect our own and they are potentially intruders set out to harm us. Um, And also like how, like in industrialization, the idea of like the nuclear family started thriving where you don't have these multi-generational homes anymore. You don't live super close to your neighbors. The idea that capitalism wants us all to be isolated and alienated from our community and our own little worlds, um, just working, working, working and trying to provide for our own. But in reality, the idea of community and working together with your community and knowing your neighbors and helping each other is so much stronger than that. Um, like the social element of like a socialized utopia, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's helping each other. Yeah. And, you know, I know like some of my neighbors, you know, in the past, I definitely don't, you know, don't like. But it's like one of those things where it's just like the idea of a greater community. Right. That's really, I think you said it way better, you know, than I have. I think you bring up a good point though, because sometimes people in our community, they're assholes. They are. But they're still our community. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) And maybe we don't want everyone in our front yard, but maybe, maybe some of them are cool. Yeah. I think it's, it, you know, I, I try to, I try to give the majority of people the benefit of the doubt, you know, and but yeah, like you said, our society is right now is set up for being, you know, kind of cut off from people like you're supposed to like, like you said, the nuclear family, the which is, you know, patriarchal, like, where you have this system that's set up that, you know, makes it hard for a lot of people to, to come together and honestly work towards maybe something that, you know, those in power who benefit from the structure don't like, because when people come together, a lot of times they're like, oh, well, I'm not afraid of you anymore. Oh, I'm not like, we can 
solve this other issue. It's true. (laughs) I think you're right though. I think that, yeah, capitalism benefits from us fearing each other. And well, I think like a healthy skepticism about everybody around you makes sense. Um, I think in general, working towards more community oriented activities and like having like the natural state of being to be more community minded rather rather than individually minded. I think that that's probably at least a step in the right direction when we destroy like nature to serve our own needs, sometimes we're destroying like animal and plant and like insect, like ecologies that are actually essential for us as well. Like, you know, whenever we just talk about the bees, I don't know what happened with the bees. Did the bees die? The bees didn't die. There was a t- uh, the time when the bees were dying. I don't know if they're still dying. Um, but, you know. Yeah, but the bees are, like, the pollinators for our environment. and like save we need, the bees. You, well, we're supposed to save the bees, right? So what would save, like, local, like, insect life better than giving them an environment that they can thrive in, especially if it's just wasted space at the expense of nothing yeah. else? It's just more pleasurable, too, because I grew up in a, a really pretty rural area. Like, I'm actually so shocked, like, moving to the city, how... Um, much plant life and, you know, nature fully, you know, really affects like my mood or like just the, the mood that is in general, like being in like a pretty natural space feels good. I feel like, you know, it opens up something else that we need in our life that is, is hard to name. Like, I think it's, it's more important than people think. And, you know, it's, it's very at odds with development and I'm using air quotes where it's like development is meant to, um, you know, get the most bang for your buck. Like what housing can be, you know, the most profitable, what spaces can be the most profitable rather than what spaces are the most, um, beneficial for people. What are spaces that make people happy, that make people like, well and not necessarily just like productive so we can like make more shit I Mm -hmm. don't know no it's true I also think too about here in Los Angeles um how a lot of unhoused people had been living at Echo Park Lake and um the city did all these sanitation sweeps is what they were calling them but in reality it's just to criminalize being homeless and kick people out of this space and a lot of people there were like I don't want to go live First of all, temporary housing in a hotel, which that's not permanent. That's not a solution. And it's an ugly space. Like, I live here by the lake. I get to wake up and enjoy the lake every day, and it's beautiful. Yeah. And there has to be a way that in our cities we can prioritize both, like, affordable housing and high-density affordable housing, if necessary, with having a natural space um, surrounding it or filling in the gaps that is beautiful and useful and not necessarily at odds with the world around us. Yeah, and I, I, it just, it blows my mind. Like, it blows my mind why we can't have, you know, beautiful spaces in the sense of, like, lots of, you know, native plants, trees, like, um, things that help, help the bees. Yes. And because we can't afford it all, it, it still, it blows my mind why, like, to me, like I, I use this term, like ugliness is so pervasive where mm-hmm. it's just like, and I mean, ugly in the sense of like, you know, concrete buildings, the front yard, like it's just seems so, I just, I, I guess it's like what everyone's like, why, why can't we have this? And like, we could, we could have this. It's not more expensive necessarily. And in fact, when you look at the cost of like maintaining the ugly spaces, like the flat grass spaces, it's more costly. And yeah, it's just one of those things where everything we do is done the wrong way. And for what benefit? It benefits nobody. Also, this is a thing I thought of too. It's like if every region had like native landscaping, everywhere you went would look different. You know, we have this Mm -hmm. homogenous American, like you said, ugliness, right? Every place you go looks the same. There's the Starbucks, there's the McDonald's, there's you know, the grocery stores, the strip malls, it's all the same, but having like, there's biodiversity in nature, right? So imagine going from one place to another and seeing a totally different landscape, how rewarding that would be to be able to witness this and like how special that would be, like a a uniqueness in its beauty that is totally lost on us now. Yeah. And I, I, this makes me think, have you ever heard of like forest bathing? I don't know a lot about that, but 
Um, it's when people basically go into the forest and just feel the forest. I'm probably getting this wrong. Just <laughs> <in> advance, <laughs> But it's like you basically go into the forest and it creates like a very great sense of well-being. And I feel like that's, you know, really, we don't have a lot of that right now. It's right. like well-being that's not meant for you to buy, you know. Right. You know, you buy a, a face mask, you know, I, and I mean the be- the beauty of beautifying face mask, you know, (laughs) to make you feel better self take a bubble bath, but it's like, you buy the products to do that. Whereas like, these open spaces that can create a sense of well being, you can't really commodify it. And that's, I don't know if that's, you know, I'm not trying to be cynical and like people do this on purpose. You know, I think a lot of times, you know, it's so easy to, to go with the flow or, you know, think, you know, go the way that you were brought up in like, especially in like, you know, American society, which is fucked. (laughs) I think that's true. I think like the commodification principle uh, in nature, we've even seen like the American government in some ways try to commodify nature with like the foundation of the national park system. Mm -hmm. And I know where I grew up in the central Valley, we have, um, Yellowstone, no Yosemite. (laughs) That's how little I go in nature. I don't even know what it's called, but in Yosemite, um, you know, even when the federal government was like, we're going to make this a nature preserve, they ended up displacing people who had been living, like indigenous people who had been living in that park area for, you know, centuries, their whole lives. They cleared them out so they could create this walled-in, fenced-in park that had some sort of element of purity where they charge you tickets and you come see the tree. Yeah, it's uh, from the little I know, the history of the natural or the national park system is fucked. Yeah, it's... and. I feel like that also probably has something to do with our idea of commodifying nature rather than like living harmoniously with it. I was watching this. I forget what the show was called. I think it's like Adam knows everything. It's produced by Nathan for you, but um, the is it Adam ruins everything? Yes, I love that show. <laughs> he was talking about scaffolding and how it's everywhere in New York. Um, and then he's just like, why is it everywhere? It's just like this ugly thing. And you're like, ha ha, why is scaffolding here everywhere? And then the deeper you go, he's like, oh, I went to a, you know, scaffolding conference in Florida. And it's a huge fucking industry. Like something as little as scaffolding, huge multi-million dollar industry. Can you, you know, lawn products, lawn care is such a huge $30 billion a year. Yeah. You know, People, and sometimes when you, people don't, I don't, people, a lot of people don't want to change. Mm-hmm. And when you tell them this stuff, instead of being like, oh, maybe I should change, they dig in harder because it's, it's hard to admit, you know? Right. But, right. And we also like, we're both millennials, right? So we dealt with like the millennials killed this industry. Millennials killed that industry. And there's all these things that realistically we didn't seek consciously out to kill or destroy. We just could not afford to engage in them. Like the diamond industry. Like, have you seen that? We apparently killed the diamond industry. Yeah, Cause like no one can afford that shit if you work a regular job. Right. No one you like if you work a regular job and didn't have money from somewhere, you know, from your parents or generational wealth, it's hard to have a fucking lawn. Yeah, it's hard to have any of these things that we can't actually afford and, you know, as ugly as the front yard was that my stepmom put in, you know, she was, she was onto something in that tract home. She was like, this is a waste of money and time. I do not have either. These are not luxury resources I have available. What is the thing that will cost the least amount of money and take up the least amount of time? And it was dirt and ugly sandstone, you know, but it was cheap. Yeah. I mean, I would definitely rather have that than a lawn where I'm just like, how much water did this do? <laughs> yeah. In Los Angeles, we're even seeing um, an interesting move with our backyard spaces, which is recently they passed the accessory dwelling unit law, which allowed people with large enough backyards to build um, like new dwelling units, like homes in their backyard. And we have like a weird zoning thing here. We don't really have like high density housing. Most of our houses are one story very rare to find something that's zoned where you can actually have multiple units on one property. 
But this introduced this idea that what if instead of having these backyards that are actually too big and also not being used, which I know is a tangent away from the front lawn thing, um, but we converted this into usable space and we made these houses because we have a housing shortage and a housing crisis. I mean, it's the least you can do. Right. Because, like, we need more housing. We need more high-density housing. And we also need nature, too. Mm -hmm. But I And, like, natural plants. I don't think they necessarily... Um, are opposed to each other. I don't think so either. I think they can coexist. I think it just takes like conscious and intentional planning. Yeah. And it's just hard because, you know, when the city talks about building affordable housing or, you know, stuff like that, or like, you know, um, housing for houseless people, it's like, it seems so like, not like, not a place you'd want to live or it's like really expensive. Mm -hmm. Like if, if we can have the mindset that it is possible to house everybody and make it look beautiful and pretty, you know, more natural plants that make the well-being for everyone like better. I, I think it's possible. You I know, think it's I possible think we too. just our default is like that's too hard. That's you know, and I don't have. I am not a, a city planner. I am not. I do not know anything about you know, urban planning, native development, all that stuff. But I do think that you know it it is possible because people have done stuff that's like really amazing. Like I just think about like Buckminster Fuller, like, I don't know who that is. Oh, uh, an architect who did the geodesic dome. Oh yeah. um, There was some project, you know, that he was working on to create with another woman whose name I totally forget. um, And to build like, basically urban housing that was like beautiful and like didn't displace people I later want to like put a link somewhere to like for this article but yeah. it's just like I was reading one of his books and he's like the number one thing that to that stops progress from happening this is just the belief that you can't do it in the first place I believe that I think that I I encounter a lot of people um especially whenever I've seen people talk about like ways to solve like the unhoused crisis, especially in Los Angeles, but in the United States, a lot of people, their response that I see online is that it's impossible. That It's not impossible. It's not impossible. There's enough money, like, fucking Jeff Bezos paid more money in taxes, which we now know he pays, like, what, like, 3% in taxes it's or so something? wild. Then you could cut, you could pay for housing for everybody in the United States. If you cut the Pentagon budget, you could end homelessness. You could end hunger. Yes. Like it's not that there's not a way there's not a will. There's not a will. We're prioritizing things with where we put the money. And what we've said we prioritize is the American myth that a few people can have everything they want and nobody else gets anything they want. Yeah. It's, it's like, um, I wish again, I had facts on hand, but it's like, Um, In the past, they were like, we will never be able to solve world hunger. It's not possible. And I was reading something. They're like, yep, we could. We've almost solved world hunger. Like we have enough food for the problem in the past was we didn't have enough. There was no way to produce enough food for everybody. Now it's like, oh, we can produce enough food for everybody. Right. Like there is enough for everybody. There's enough for everybody. But people just refuse to like look deeper and believe it. They have some like weird Anne Rand thing where it's like, it's survival of the fittest. There's not enough. So like those who like are the fittest should hoard the most. It's like, that's not true. The way that humans get along with each other is because we're like social creatures. Like I've never been able, I would never be able to survive on my own. Like same. I need other people to, you know, do the roads, like, you know, teach me stuff when I was a child, like all this, uh, we're all like, it's like we're all interconnected and I know it's maybe it's naive of me but I just don't understand why people don't think that stuff like improving our lives is possible or ending houselessness ending hunger ending the like the the crisis of quote-unquote, ugly, you know, spaces. Right. I think, like, this kind of ties into this book that I read. Um, So a long time ago when I was in a lot of debt and I was really stressed out about it, I read this book called Debt, The First 500 Years or First 1,000 Years, and the author's name was David Graeber, I think. And he talked about in the beginning how um, 
first of all, like debt has always been a thing that's happened because agricultural systems throughout history have always relied on this idea that like the harvest will be bountiful. So you had people living in communities who were farmers who had, you know, theoretically nothing to contribute to the community for most of the months out of the year. But then when the harvest came, it would be bountiful and they would feed everybody in the community. So, you know, in in the meantime, they would get all of their needs taken care of by the community. But it wasn't this like barter system that we're thinking of, or like it wasn't even a strict tally system of debt. It was just this um, social consciousness. Everybody in the community knew like, oh, I have extra of this. You can have it. That's fine. And there was an idea and understanding that the, the thing you gave to the person, if they ever have extra of something, they would give it to you. But it wasn't like a strict checks and tally system. It was more just a community mindset that like, this is how we, this is how we operate. Somebody needs something and I have extra. Why wouldn't I give it to them? And one day they might have extra and I might need something and they'll give it to me. And this like cyclical nature of like gifting, it was almost like a gifting economy where people gave to each other and took from each other. Um, but without strict expectation, more just with like a social expectation, that was the norm. And economists have kind of tried to rewrite this idea to say that, oh, we need money. Money came from bartering and bartering, you know, showed that it was necessary. And bartering was very, like very strict because we're always trying to hold each other accountable and make sure everything's exactly fair and exactly right. But that's not actually like human nature. So when you hear these people think that like things aren't possible because humans are too selfish or there's not enough to go around, that actually is at odds with the facts, but it is not at odds with the propaganda like we've been fed our whole lives. Are people really selfish? Are there evil people out there like truly or is it the way the system is set up and we perceive it? We just automatically assume, well, we can't share with each other because there's always going to be like a dickhead. There's always going to be an asshole. Like, sorry, you know, or there's a a jerk. That's what I mean. Like, there's always going to be someone who's going to take more than they need. Like, and, you know, people are just like, well, it's all fucked then. It's like, no, people deal with people taking more than they need or being a jerk, like, without having to, you know, just be like, oh, well, we can't, like, share with each other now because one person may gain the symptom. I don't get that concept. I don't either. And even in my house, like, um... Like, I know in my house, okay, so I live with my partner, my boyfriend, and we have, like, household chores, and um, I'm ashamed to admit I do not pull my weight in the house. Uh, My boyfriend does most of the cleaning. Uh, He even does most of the cooking, I think. And at first, he was very, like, tit for tat, like, this is unfair, and eventually got to the point where I was like, look, like... I have all these things in my life, the way my brain works. Like, I keep a tidy home, but I am not, like, a cleaner, and... I just had to sit him down and like we had this conversation and he realized like both of our brains work differently. Like we're both doing the best we can in whatever capacity we can, but we're both capable of different amounts of things and in different ways. And the more you try to make sure everything is fair to the T, like you're kind of missing out on the human experience of like sharing your home with another person. Oh my gosh. It's the worst experience when you date someone who literally tallies every single thing right that you've done and I have been there and it's like too like e- like honestly like emotion should not be tit for tat like you sh- they should not like that or like when someone's like nickel and diming you like well we went out to um dinner last week and you shorted me three dollars and 27 cents like that that relationship sucks it's <laughs> hard yeah it's hard to be in that kind of situation I mean, unless you really need that three bucks which right. i have been there right no, know, no no but there's exceptions for sure but i think like in general the idea of like counting up and adding every single thing um it does contribute to this idea that like communities have to be less people oriented and more numbers oriented mm-hmm. and i think that contributes to the idea of things that can or cannot be done and like Americans internalize this idea of what's fair so much that I think it's the main reason we can't, for example, solve the housing crisis because there's enough money to just give people houses, but Americans so resent the idea that a person would just be given a home for what they consider to be free that they won't let it happen. It's like, no, well, I put in X amount to get Y amount out of my life. If they didn't also put in X amount, why should they get Y? That's impossible to quantify. It's impossible to quantify. It's also, I was listening to some other podcast where someone was talking about how um he was like in my experience like just people's idea of justice air quotes um 
a lot of times demands punishment. Yes. And I think that we are a very punishment focused society. Yes. Whereas like, it doesn't matter about the public good. There's some sort of like weird punishment thing where it's like, if something bad happens to you, um, even if you're a good person, even if it wasn't, it's, it's always your fault. You know, it's, there's a lot of these things. If something, if you are, if something bad happens to you, you are being punished either because you did something wrong or because, you know, in the case of like American society, like God, you know, God is punishing you like for some reason. And that's like, that's a whole, that's a whole other <laughs> tangent, but it's just like this punishment act, you know, aspect of our society to me is, is so wild. Yeah, I think that, though, these mindsets are the things that stand in our way of imagining a better world, right? Because the thing about, like, the front lawns, like, yeah, it's a very specific thing that has, like, a tangible solution. Like, rip out your grass and plant plants that want to be there, and it'll be better for your environment and, like, for you and for your communities. You know, that's, like, a very concrete thing with a concrete solution. But it's part of a broader conversation about, like, how do you build a better world? And to build a better world, you need to imagine that a better world is possible. Exactly. Okay, so operating off of this premise that, um, like, the Arundhati Roy quote, like, a better world is not only possible, she is on her way. So if we operate off this idea that we can build a better world and it will happen, what then kind of is your ideal front lawn like in Utopia? Oh my gosh. Now I'm, you know, I want to see these TikToks where other people describe their like fairy gardens and stuff. I think it's just, you know, access to nature, like maybe like a little pond, if that's possible, like definitely some fruit trees, leave a zucchini, take a zucchini, you know? Yes. I love that. And like probably like, you know, like, like 70s style, lots of wood, you know, lots of green, just like pack in as much as possible with a little bench. And, you know, it just opens up onto, you know, a street where, you know, everyone's smiling. I like that. (laughs) I love that. That's utopia. I think that, yeah, my utopic front front lawn would definitely be lined with fruit trees that kind of go over onto the street. So people walking down the street can just take a piece of fruit if they're hungry or whatever. And yeah, I imagine a little bench, a little place to sit to actually enjoy and utilize the outdoor space. And I would be content with only an outdoor space that was a front lawn like that. And the whole back of the building can just be housing, you know, just give me the little bit of greenery in the front. I don't need the backyard. I need little yard. But uh, think about that. That would be 2%. If everybody in the U.S. did that, that would be 2% of all land in the United States could just be beautiful fairy lawn for all of us with food. I want the beautiful fairy lawns for everyone who wants one. Yes, yes. Okay, well, I think we we solved it. I think we fixed it. I think we fixed the world in this podcast. Do you think so? I'm sure. I'm, I'm so sure. Okay, that must be a sign that we should get out while we're ahead. <laughs> Hey, it's Madeline. Thank you so much for making it to the end of our very first episode of our brand new podcast. There are some links up in our show notes, including sources for all the info I provided at the beginning of this episode, four different links for some further reading about things that Kenna and I tangentially mentioned, and a link to our brand new Patreon, which if you contribute $2 a month there, will give you access to a place where you can leave us voice messages, which we hope to use for a capitalism survival skills advice segment in future episodes. So thanks again for being here and we can't wait for future stuff to drop.